The scripture reading for today comes from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of, of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen, chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he, then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the same man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning again and welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin. If I haven't met any of you yet, we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts called The World Turned Upside Down. And today we're going to be looking at the conversion of Saul, also known as the Apostle Paul, the same apostle who wrote 13 out of the 27 books of the New Testament, something that no one would have predicted before the day that Saul met Jesus. Now, it's often assumed that Saul was renamed Paul, after he began following Christ, you may have heard the phrase, a Saul to Paul conversion, but that's actually not the case. 
Saul is simply his Jewish name, and Paul is simply his Roman name or Latin name. Paul is basically a Latin transliteration of the name Saul. And so I'm mostly going to be saying Saul in this sermon because that's what the text normally refers to him as, but a few Pauls may slip in there. Don't be confused. Same person. Now, as we dive deeper into Saul's conversion story, we're going to have three points. They're not in the booklet, but they will be on the screen. And those three points will be the Pharisee, the predestined, and the proclaimer. Saul the Pharisee, Saul the predestined, and Saul the proclaimer. And so let's begin with the first point, the Pharisee. In verses 1 through 2 of our passage, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if any he found uh, belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul starts off our passage threatening Jewish Christians. He's doing reconnaissance so that he can find Jewish Christians in Damascus, bring them bound to Jerusalem, and put them in prison or maybe worse. And he's on his way to Jerus- from Jerusalem to Damascus to hunt down Christians who are taking refuge there. Saul was not satisfied with Christians simply leaving town, getting out of Jerusalem. If you were a Christian in Jerusalem and you fled for safety in Damascus, Saul was going to come for you. He was going to follow you to Damascus and bring you back to Jerusalem to be punished and quite possibly killed. And this isn't the first time that Saul has been mentioned so far in Acts. If you remember, he was mentioned a few times around the passage regarding Stephen's stoning. So Stephen, if you'll recall, uh, was a faithful follower of Christ. He was actually one of the first deacons, you could say, of the church. And he makes this incredible speech calling out the high priest and the religious leaders of the day. And at the end of it, They're so furious with him that they take Stephen outside of the city walls and they stone him. They kill him. And where is Saul during all this? He's right there, holding the coats of those who are stoning Stephen. Acts 8.1 says that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Acts 8.3 says that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison after Stephen's Stoning, And so Saul has been coming after Christians already in Acts, and he's still doing so in our passage. And there's a word for this, for what Saul is doing, persecution. You know, hostility and ill treatment of people because of their religious beliefs. Saul is a persecutor of the church. And that's what the next few verses of our passage say explicitly. Verses 3 through 5. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And obviously, there's a lot going on right there, and I'll press into that deeper in the next point. But first things first, this voice, Jesus' voice, It says to Saul that he is a persecutor. Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. Why are you persecuting me? And so why is Saul persecuting Jesus? Why is Saul persecuting Christians, the church? Well, he's persecuting the church because he's a Pharisee. Now, 
Not every Pharisee's actions rose to the level of persecution like Saul, but it is clear that Saul's Pharisaical uh, nature is what led him to progress toward full-on persecution of the church. Persecution is where Pharisaism leads. There's a clear line for that in Saul's life. And so Saul persecuted the church violently and tried to destroy it as an overflow of his Pharisaism. But why? You know, why did Saul do this? What was going on in his heart? What was going on in his mind? How did he justify his actions at the time? Well, you see, Saul wasn't hunting down, punishing, and killing Christians because he hated God. In Saul's mind, he was doing it because he was devoted to God. He was loyal to the one true God of Israel. You know, he says in Galatians 1.14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Saul was a zealous Jew. He had zeal. He had tremendous energy and enthusiasm for his cause, an obsession almost. And Saul was doing these things because he had zeal for Judaism. He had zeal for the faith of his ancestors. He even referred to himself elsewhere in scripture as a Hebrew of Hebrews. You know, he checked every box, circumcised on the eighth day, check, belonging to the tribe of Benjamin, check, blameless before the law, check, a Pharisee, check. And so to a zealous Pharisee like Saul, those who followed this so-called Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, they were a poison and they needed to be removed. And so Saul was in complete agreement with Judaism's leaders when they condemned Jesus to death. After all, to be crucified on a cross would be a disgrace. And the clearest way to say that Jesus was a cursed blasphemer and all who followed this cursed man, even after his death, they were a poison to the people of Israel and they needed to be removed. And Saul thought that he was just the man for the job. After all, the works of his entire life had proven that he was wholly devoted to the Lord. Or so we thought. You see, Saul, while believing that he was devoted to the Lord, actually wasn't devoted to God at all, not the true God. He had many mistaken beliefs about God the same sort of mistaken beliefs that all Pharisees tend to have. He was zealous in all the wrong ways. Zeal can be good so long as it's for good things, but Paul was zealous in all the wrong ways. You know, first of all, he was zealous for things that don't matter as much to God as other things. You know, Saul was ignorant of what God truly cared most about. He tended to make secondary things primary and primary things secondary. That's one of the hallmark moves of Pharisees, making secondary issues primary issues. You know, King David writes about God in Psalm 51, and he says, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You know, God really did set up a sacrificial system with all sorts of offerings, but the point wasn't the sacrifices and offerings themselves. The point was your heart as you made them. God wants your heart to be broken by your sin more than he wants you to make the right sacrifice. 
If you make sacrifices that perfectly meet God's regulations, but your heart is not contrite, then you've missed the point. But that's often the way of the Pharisee. They do all the right external things. They dot all their I's. They cross all their T's. But their hearts are not changed. They miss God's heart. Or a second way Saul was pharisaical and zealous for the wrong things was by adding to the word of God. You know, this is something that all Pharisees did in the first century. They had the Old Testament and all its laws and rules and regulations, but what Pharisees did was take what the Old Testament's law stated and write new, even more restrictive rules and impose them on themselves and others. And the logic was this. You know, let's say that there was a law that said you should never come within 10 feet of a horse. And you know, I'm just making this up. There's no law that says that. But imagine there's a law that says you should never come within 10 feet of a horse. The Pharisee would take that and then have an additional law that said you should never come within 20 feet of a horse. If you never come within 20 feet of a horse, then you can't come within 10 feet of a horse. And there's a certain logic to that, right? But there are at least three problems with it, too. First, it mixes up the categories of wisdom and obedience. Do you see that? You know, it confuses wisdom and obedience. They're different things. It may be wise to remain 20 feet away from the horse, especially if you're a clumsy person or you tend to lack awareness of your surroundings. It may be wise for you to remain 20 feet away from a horse that does ensure you're safely at least 10 feet away. But because it's Maybe wise for someone to remain 20 feet away does not mean that if someone else is only 15 feet away or exactly 10 feet away, that they're being disobedient or breaking the law. They're being just as obedient as the person who stays 20 feet away. You know, 20 feet may be wise in some circumstances or for some people, but it's not the case that those within 20 feet are breaking the law. They may not even be being unwise. You know, 10 feet is the only line for obedience. Further distances may be wise for some, but they're not matters of obedience. And Pharisees tend to mix up these categories. They mix up wisdom and obedience. That's the first problem. Second problem with the 20-foot rule is that it adds to God's word. It ascribes to God something that he did not say. And that's a very serious mistake. God cares very much that you don't take away from his word, but he also cares very much that you don't add to it either. Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to the word that I commanded you. Revelation twenty two eighteen. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If God says 10 feet, you must not add to his word by saying it's actually 20. When you do that, it's extremely prideful. You see how? If God says 10 and you say, wouldn't it be better to say 20, you're putting yourself above God. And if you're better than God, then you're better than everyone. You know, Pharisees and their pride tend to add to God's word. Which leads to a third problem, self-righteousness. When you say 20 where God has said 10 and impose that on others, you are being self-righteous. You're saying you know better than God, you know better than everyone. You are better than everyone. Look how righteous I am. When God says 10, I say 20. Double the righteousness, right? But of course, Self-righteousness has no place in our relationship with God. It's antithetical to the gospel. It's antithetical to grace. It's antithetical to humility. We all come before God with no righteousness of our own to offer. 
We all need his grace and mercy. We're made righteous in his sight only because of the work of Christ on our behalf on the cross. So staying 20 feet away when God said, says 10 has nothing to do with your standing before him. Now, briefly, let me say on the flip side, there can be a kind of anti-Pharisaism that's also dangerous. And uh, this may apply to some of you. Some of us are so worried about appearing like a Pharisee that they don't stay 20 feet away from the horse. They go five feet from the horse. They touch the horse. You know, wouldn't want to be pharisaical about 10 feet, right? But that's its own mistake called antinomianism or licentiousness. The solution to pharisaism isn't antinomianism. It's grace-motivated obedience. If God says 10, it's 10. It's not more than 10. It's not less than 10. It's 10. Sticking to 10 doesn't make you a Pharisee. It makes you obedient. But this sermon isn't about antinomians. It's about Saul the Pharisee. So how do you live like a Pharisee sometimes? You know, we may not rise to the level of persecution like Saul did, but there's a little Pharisee most likely inside all of us. And, you know, there's a sliding scale of ways that it can manifest itself even before it rises to full-blown persecution of others. You know, no matter the issue, how do you live like a Pharisee sometimes? It's actually possible to be pharisaical toward other Pharisees. How do you live like a Pharisee sometimes? Are there secondary issues that you make primary? Are there ways you add to the word of God? Do you practice some things because they're wise for you, but look down on others who don't? Or maybe are there gifts or callings that you have that maybe others don't that leads you to feel superior to them? Uh, you know, in the Old Testament, um, it's sometimes the case that a king in Israel is bad. In uh, 1 Kings 18, there's one such king, Ahab. He is a bad king. And two servants of the Lord are, who are called to two vastly different relationships to this evil king. And so you have Ahab, the bad king, and then you have Obadiah, who works in Ahab's court. And his calling within the court is to restrain evil from inside. And he actually does this at one point by providing refuge for a hundred prophets when their lives are being threatened by the king. You know, an outsider never could have done that, but Obadiah can because he's inside the king's court restraining evil. So you have Obadiah, but then on the other hand, you have Elijah, who works outside the king's court, who is called to be a prophet, who calls out against the king publicly. He makes sure that the king and the public consistently hear what is right and what is wrong in God's eyes. An insider likely never could have done this without being fired or worse. And in 1 Kings 18, these two, Obadiah inside the court, Elijah outside the court, they meet. And neither one of them says to the other, why are you doing things the way you're doing them? Do it the way I'm doing them. That would be self-righteous, a pharisaical view of one another. But instead, they both respect the calling of the other. They are humble. They are meek. They realize they, they need each other to more fully fulfill their callings. And so do you see how you need others who are gifted in different ways, who are called to different things, who see things that maybe you don't see as easily 
The church is a body with hands and feet and eyes and mouths. We don't need a church where everyone is exactly like us. And we should not impose our calling and our giftings on others. Instead, we should see our need for people gifted and called differently than us and seek to serve one another in humility, graciously serving and helping others who are weak where we are strong, humbly receiving help and service from others who are strong where we are weak. Saul was a Pharisee. He thought he was better than everyone, superior to everyone. He treated matters of wisdom like matters of obedience. He added to the word of God to the point that he missed what the Old Testament actually said about the Messiah. He missed how Jesus fulfilled all that was said about the Messiah because Jesus didn't fulfill all the non-biblical things that Saul thought would be true of the Messiah. And in his pharisaical zeal, he persecuted all the Jews who were different from him, all the Jews who followed Jesus, until Saul met Jesus. And that takes us to our second point, the predestined. Have you ever had a near-death experience? Uh, could have been worse, but I have had near-near-death experience once cycling out by the Calaveras Reservoir. I was riding on my old aluminum rim brake bike, and I was descending down all these curves and back and forth. And one of the curves, I realized I was coming in a little too hot. And so I started to brake with a little more strength than I normally do, and my back wheel locked up. And I started skidding out toward a rock wall when suddenly my wheel caught again, and I kept going forward. But my heart was beating so strongly after that. I actually got a disc brake bike after that because I needed the power. A near, near-death experience. Have you ever had a near-death experience? Saul, you could say, had a near-death experience in our passage, not in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense. He was an inch away from death spiritually until God graciously saved him. And here's how that happened. Again, in verses 3 through 4, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. A light from heaven shone around him, and so he falls on the ground, and he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul. Now, something important to remember about Saul is that he is an Old Testament scholar. He actually views the scriptures as authoritative. He's devoted to the Lord of Israel, so he knows what the scriptures say, and he expects what they teach will have some bearing on reality. And so when a heavenly light shines on him, he's thinking of Isaiah 9 too. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. He's also thinking of Isaiah chapter 6 and how when the prophet Isaiah was brought into the Lord's presence, he fell flat on his face before the Lord. And so Saul falls on the ground. And when he hears a loud voice repeating his name, Saul, Saul, he's thinking of Moses in the burning bush. Exodus 3, 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the brush, Moses, Moses. Saul knows that many Jews of his day have believed that the Lord has abandoned the temple forever, but not Saul. Saul remembers the words of the prophet Malachi, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come. 
So Saul is totally expecting to have a radical experience with the Lord, with Yahweh, with the God of Israel. But the words that follow absolutely devastate him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What? When have I ever persecuted you, Lord? And so he asks, who who are you, Lord? And Saul, who had been fully expecting to hear from the one true God who he has worshipped and served his entire life, is completely blindsided. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Just like that, everything changes for Saul. Jesus, I thought you were dead this whole time. You're alive? That completely changes how Saul sees everything he thought he knew. He suddenly realizes that he is an inch away from death and eternal condemnation. You see, Saul was right to be wholly devoted to the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he had been completely wrong in his understanding of who that God was and how he would fulfill his purposes. He had been totally right to be devoted to Israel, but totally wrong about Israel's role in redemptive history. He had been completely right to study and obey the Old Testament scriptures, but he completely misunderstood what it was saying. He was not on a trajectory toward life. He was headed toward eternal death. Until... God graciously revealed to Saul that Jesus was raised from the dead and still lives, which means that Jesus is, in fact, Israel's Messiah. It means that Jesus is the Lord God himself. And in that moment, Saul stopped being ignorant. He recognized that it wasn't Jesus and his followers who were unclean, impure, a poison to Israel. It was him. He was unclean. He was impure. He had been the poison to Israel. And what happens next must have just melted Saul's heart. Because in that moment, when he realized that he had been totally wrong, he must have feared for his life. He must have thought that God was going to smite him right then and there. He'd have every right to. But what does Jesus do instead? He shepherds him. He provides for Saul. He finalizes what he had always predestined for Saul. Verse 6, rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Verses 8 through 9, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Jesus is gracious to Saul. Jesus is gracious even to Pharisees, even to persecutors of the church. So when Saul gets to Damascus, the Lord has already prepared the way for him. He's predestined what would happen there. Verses 10 through 16. Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. 
For Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Did you hear what the Lord says about Saul? Saul is a chosen instrument of mine. I chose him. I predestined him. I predestined this. This has been my plan all along. And so even though Saul will later refer to himself as one untimely born, which is true in some sense, obviously, the greater reality is that Saul was born at exactly the right time. He was predestined for the specific moment. God had planned for it since before the foundations of the earth were laid. And that's the same for you, too. If you are in Christ, then that is true for, your, for you, too. Ephesians 1, 3 through 10 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. He chose us in him before the foundations of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption according to the purpose of his will. In his mysterious will, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. He predestined Saul and he predestined you if you are in Christ. And look, I don't really have time in this sermon to argue for the doctrine of predestination. I think that scripture is pretty clear about it. But if that's an idea that you really struggle to believe, I totally understand. Let's get coffee and talk more about it. But for the purpose of this passage in our sermon today, I'm just going to repeat what Scripture says. God chose Saul. He predestined him, and he chose us and predestined us. And predestination is the perfect antidote to Pharisees. Predestination is exactly what Saul needed for his Pharisaical tendencies and exactly what you need for your pharisaical tendencies, too. Do you see how? The Pharisee, in all of us, is prideful. It wants to say, look at me and how wise or smart or righteous I am. You know, pretty smart of me to believe in Jesus, right? Pretty righteous of me to grow in holiness and live in such and such a way. Look how good I am. The predestination knocks all that down, right? An even greater reality than your decision to trust Christ for salvation was God's choice to predestine you for salvation. John six forty four, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John fifteen sixteen says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And so if God was the one who chose you, if he was the one who drew you, if he's the one who predestined you, then you have nothing to boast about, right? There's nothing to be self-righteous about. There's nothing to be pharisaical about. It's all grace, unmerited favor. God has been kind to you and chosen you and drawn you, not because of anything in yourself, but only because of his grace. So predestination is the antidote to your 
pride and self-righteousness and to that little Pharisee inside of you. You have nothing to boast about. You have nothing but the grace of Jesus to rest upon. Now Saul came to see that, and he never got over it. Everything that he rested upon before was in an instant taken away from him, and he saw it for what it truly was, worthless, evil, deserving of hell and condemnation. And for the rest of his ministry, he never got over the fact that God had graciously chosen him, saved him, predestined him, and affected everything he ever did from that moment on. He could not stop telling people about the grace of Jesus. That near-death moment avoided. He was saved. He lived. What about your near-death moment spiritually? You did not choose God. God chose you. That's how close you were to death, but in his grace, God predestined you. Paul could not stop telling people about that grace. And that takes us to our final point, the proclaimer. Remember the story of Rahab from our By Faith sermon series? Rahab was a prostitute whose story was redeemed by God. You know, by virtue of her occupation, she was probably often having strange men into her home and maybe even needing to hide them. And how did God use Rahab? By having her hide strange men in her home. And if you'll remember, Israel sent spies into Jericho, and Rahab invited them into her home and kept them out of sight when soldiers came looking for them because she believed that the spies were sent by the one true God, the God of Israel. And so God used Rahab. God redeemed her broken past and quite specifically used it for his future purposes. And this is a theme throughout Scripture. God redeems broken pasts in their particulars— and uses them for his future purposes. In our passage, we see something similar. We begin to see how Saul's story, in its particulars, is going to be redeemed. Verses 17 and 18, we see his conversion. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately... Something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. We've talked about conversions before. Here, Saul left behind his old ways and embraced new ways, specifically the way, the way of Jesus Christ. That's what Christianity was sort of called at this point. If you notice in verse 2 of our passage, it said that Saul was looking for people belonging to the way. Well, now Saul belongs to the way. And something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. He once was blind, but now he sees in more ways than one. Then he rose and was baptized, sign and seal of the covenant of grace, Saul converted. And he wasted no time getting to work for the cause of Jesus. Verses 19 through 22, And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was 
the Christ. Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God, and all who heard him were amazed. He confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Everybody was confused. Wasn't this the guy who was just persecuting Christians? How come now he's proclaiming the same message as them? Is he faking it? Is this a trick? No. This is the beginning of Saul's call to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's quite understandable how, on a practical level, many would be fearful or doubtful of Saul. And there are even Jewish religious leaders who now hated Saul. Uh, This wasn't in our passage, but in verse 23 of chapter 9, it says that Jewish, Jewish religious leaders began plotting how to kill Saul. You know, just like Saul, the Jewish religious leader, threatened Christians, so now Saul the Christian was threatened by Jewish religious leaders. And so Saul must have been looking at his past and thinking, this makes me a liability. You know, Jewish religious leaders are trying to kill me. Jewish Christians probably fear me. I'm a liability to the way of Jesus right now. And in some sense, that's true. They're would be consequences for Saul's past. Saul won't primarily be an apostle to the Jews because of how he treated Jewish Christians and because Jewish leaders hated him. But that actually fits in perfectly with God's plans, right? Remember where we are in Acts? We're in a section where the gospel is primarily spreading among Gentiles. God has plenty of people ready to reach out to the Jews, right? Almost all the people who follow Christ at this point are Jewish, But what God intends to do now is begin and continue reaching the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the nations, the entire world. And do you know who would be perfect to head up that effort? Someone who would initially not be well-received by Jews. A Jew who now knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that his Jewish credentials were nothing in God's sight. A Jew who would never be tempted again to see himself as better than Gentiles. And so Saul would primarily be an apostle to the Gentiles, to non-Jews. Saul's past is not so bad that God can't still use him. In fact, it's the particulars of Saul's past that he intends to use for his purposes. All that work that Saul did to become an Old Testament scholar, that's actually going to be very useful when he's writing so much of the New Testament. And all that zeal for all the wrong things, now that zeal will be for Christ and his mission and his grace. And as hard as it was for Saul to believe, the Lord had predestined Saul's story to take all the pieces of Saul's story, to take him, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the persecutor of the church, and transform him into a proclaimer of Jesus, into an apostle of Christ, the highest office. And if the Lord can transform Saul's story like that, in its particulars— the Lord can transform Saul's story and Saul's life, then he can absolutely transform yours. None of you have a past as dark as Saul's. If the Lord can transform Saul's life, then he can transform you too. And so what from your past? What in your story, what regrets, what embarrassments, what moments you never want to think about again? What occasions where you look back and ask, what if that never happened? What from your past do you fear means your future is ruined? What from your past makes you think that God won't use you, transform you? Whatever it is that you think has ruined your future, made it so God won't use you, you're wrong. 
Christ can and intends to redeem and use your past in its particulars for your future. If for nothing else, so that you'll see Christ as supremely valuable and delight in him each and every day. The Apostle Paul's famous quote in Philippians 3 was that he had perspective now. Everything was rubbish compared to knowing Christ Jesus. I'm sure Saul lived the rest of his life asking what things might have been like if Christ had not been so gracious to him. Do you ever stop and wonder that? What if God had not been so gracious to me? Where would I be right now without Christ? When you see how Christ has saved you from near death, for no reason that has to do with you, but only in his grace, it humbles you. You know, Saul was shaken to his core because he knew he was getting the opposite of what he deserved in Christ's favor toward him. And so he never thought too highly of himself again. He refers to himself as the least of the apostles. He says that he doesn't even deserve to be an apostle, which is true. Only for the grace of God is Paul an apostle. Only for the grace of God are you anything. That job you have, your intelligence, your wisdom, your family, your charming personality, anything good you have is ultimately because the Lord has been gracious to you. And that should give you a sobering humility. And when you see Christ as absolutely gracious, and when you see yourself in total humility, it actually frees you up to genuinely love and serve other people, even people who are vastly different than you which for Saul is a 180-degree turnaround because he was pretty much only concerned with other Jewish people before his conversion. You know, he viewed the nations as nothing but a threat of impurity upon Israel. But after Saul meets Jesus, he realizes that it was him who was impure, and that apart from the grace of God, his Jewish background counts for nothing when compared to the holiness of God, and it shows In his missionary work to the Gentile nations, he is adamant that to become a Christian does not mean that the Gentiles need to become Jewish. What's more, he leaves behind parts of his Jewish identity when it hinders his mission to share the gospel with Gentile nations. 1 Corinthians 9, he says, To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. We should all be asking ourselves a similar question. What would I leave behind? What might I need to leave behind for my cultural preferences so that I won't hinder someone from a different background experiencing Christ? But look, if you have doubts that the Lord will work these changes in you, let me just wrap up by suggesting that he already has begun. There's plenty of evidence, Uh, And one that I'll point out, which I've pointed out before, is that the fact we're all gathered today for worship is proof. We're the fruit of Saul's Gentile ministry. We're all non-Jews from a diversity of backgrounds gathering to worship and proclaim Jesus as Lord. If Saul knew 2,000 years ago that in the future gatherings like this would be happening, he'd smile. Not because of his work, not because of anything in us, but because the grace of Jesus to the Gentiles, to all nations, to the end of the earth had happened. Jesus predestined that Saul the Pharisee would proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, and that's why you're here today, which means that Jesus predestined Saul for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you for your grace and mercy to us and for your grace and mercy towards Saul. Father, we pray that we would believe all of our Pharisaical tendencies, even 
when we're pharisaical toward other Pharisees. Father, forgive us for these things. Help us to see how the grace of your sovereign choice, of your predestination, humbles us. And Father, help us to trust more and more in your redemptive work, your sovereignty over our story, to take the particulars of our past and redeem them and use them for your future purposes. Let us rest in that. Let us rest ultimately in you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.